Welcome to the Cedar Fort Come Follow Me Made Easier podcast. I'm your host, Linda Cherry. This week, we have the wonderful opportunity of hearing from our teacher, Sam Castor, the author of the book, Zion Rising, that is coming out in May. This week, we're going to be discussing Exodus 14 through 17. Welcome, Sam. Hey there. So happy to be with you again. And I'm so excited to discuss what we get to discuss today. Um, as we uh, look at these chapters, I think there's some beautiful principles that we can evaluate. And they all fit in with this idea that <clears throat> I think the Lord is trying to show us and that he was trying to show the people of Israel that we can progress from standing still and watching the Lord prevail, witnessing, and we can progress to actually sustaining and participating in those miracles until he actually teaches us how to perform those miracles in his name by the power of his word. And so <clears throat> the idea of God prevailing, using his word to bring about miracles is what I'd like to talk about today. I'm sure you have thoughts on that, and I'm excited to discuss it with you. I love that, Sam, and I I love that uh, sort of projection uh, as we move forward with the Israelites. When I think about them, and at the very beginning, everything was so new to them, and they had this these great miracles that had transpired that delivered them, but we see right away that they're really afraid. They still don't know God, and so I love your your emphasis there on witnessing it or seeing it um, and then participating it and then becoming part of it, because we'll see that in their journey. And I think it's just so applicable to each one of us as we have our own mortal journeys that um, it's sometimes hard to recognize all that the potential that the Lord and has given to us and to be part of his work rather than just observers. That, that's so true. And you know, it's funny that there's, a, I shouldn't say funny. It's, it's, it's actually uh, insightful to my brain and my and my heart. I served my mission in uh, Moldova and Romania, which is uh, uh, in that part of the world that's in the news right now with Ukraine and everything, right right next to Ukraine. And the Soviet mindset, the, the communist mindset, really stripped agency away from the people. And it, and when I was on my mission, we used to talk about this all the time. That in many respects, those that are struggling out of communism or out of that mindset are that are reclaiming their agency and the belief that they can change the world around them, they were very similar to the children of Israel and why it took them so long to get to that progressive point of, okay, I can believe in God, I can be a witness, now I can participate in it, and then I can actually be miracle, a miracle maker with God myself, you know, that, that progressive path. So, And what I love I, about that too, by the way, um, is the fact that the promise of the covenant is that we would become priests and kings and queens and priestesses unto God. And so he wants us to understand what our potential is and to empower us. And so as he's taking them and on this journey to Mount Sinai, where he will try to teach them what who they are as his children is such a radical difference from what they experienced in slavery in Egypt. Yeah, absolutely. What a great point. So <clears throat> I like to discuss this as the power of his word. I think that the idea of, of God's power and his speech and his word is something that's woven all throughout these, these scriptures in Exodus 14 through 17. And as we go forward, I think there's four principles that are most insightful. Number one is uh, the principle that the Lord prevails so we can know him. He, he wants us to know him. John 17, three says eternal life is knowing Christ and God, the father. And so there's something about us coming back to him, knowing him, being connected and aware of, of, of how much he loves us and how much he wants to bless us with that's that's essential to our divine relationship and our progression back home the second principle is the lord keeps his promises to abraham with miraculous signs and symbols and i think that's essential for us to keep a hold of in these last days it's common through the scriptures for for believers to start to wonder or question whether god uses miracles but he is a god of power and majesty he he literally and symbolically moves mountains and divides Red Seas and, and does amazing things in our lives. And if we're not open to that, we're going to miss those things. And we're not going to see him and have that chance to know him through the miracle. The third principle is the Lord's word nourishes and empowers us. And the fourth principle is the, the harmony of sustaining our leaders and others around us. As we get into the last miracle in that story with Moses and, and Joshua. So starting with that first principle, <clears throat> miracles to know God. It's interesting the scriptures talk consistently about this. They say in Exodus 14, 4 and 18, the Lord tells Moses, I'm going to perform these miracles, quote, that the Egyptians may know and shall know that I am the Lord. 
end quote. That's that's the that's the principle he's highlighting for them that he's he's caring as much about the Egyptians as he is about the Israelites, and he's trying to bring about a conversion in them as well. And I I loved what last time we had a discussion, Linda, you highlighted that there were times where Egypt was righteous, and they believed in the true priesthood. What do you think about that? Yeah, I really love that you um, have brought this up too, because I think a lot of people get really troubled by the idea of Israel being a chosen race. Um, But when we really look more deeply at scriptures like this, and we see the work of the Lord and the hand of the Lord, we come to recognize that the Lord loves all of his children equally and that they are all cherished by him. And um, so I've had the opportunity of of, uh, going to Egypt a couple of times and uh, had a wonderful guide there, a Christian guide, who made a real emphasis on the fact that Egypt is also a holy land unto the Lord, and that the Lord took the Israelites to Egypt in the first place. Uh, He took Abraham and Sarah to Egypt. And in fact, he sent Jesus Christ, his son, to Egypt for protection, and that there have been many periods of life our light, excuse me, in Egypt, when they were greatly influenced by the great prophets, Abraham, Joseph, and others. And uh, they are our brothers. And I think it's really important that we have this emphasis that the Lord is witnessing not just to the Israelites, but he's witnessing to the Egyptians. And in fact, when you mentioned that we have miracles today, that a lot of times we just sort of, we don't notice them. Um, He's witnessing to all the world right now, don't you think? Absolutely. He's calling to all of us. And just and his, and his message is the same with all of them. Come and see, come and believe, come return to me. My hand stretched out still. In, in Exodus 14, 13 through 14, he says, um, or it records that, and Moses said unto the people, fear ye not, stand still and see the salvation of the Lord. And so here's this first step where the Lord is saying, watch, witness. I will show you how much I love you. I will show you how much I care about you. And then he says, the Lord shall fight for you and he shall hold your peace. I love that. Yeah, a lot of times we try to figure things out. We try to figure out, oh, I think this is supposed to happen. And specifically, I really noticed this with the Israelites is that they were willing to leave uh, Egypt. But as soon as any difficulty arose, when Pharaoh starts to change his mind and come after them, then they're totally panicked and they're second guessing whether or not they really should have left in the first place. They're second guessing whether uh, the Lord's hand is in this. And they're really fearful and they're thinking, oh, we were safer in Egypt. And I think a lot of us go through that same thing where we might feel an inspiration to move forward in a certain direction, but it isn't always made easy for us. We might have some trials and some blocks along that path that we believe we're supposed to be walking. And a lot of times, like those Israelites, we will second guess, oh, really, is the Lord here or not? Um, And I love that emphasis on stand still and be at peace. Um, Because I know that in my own life, I've certainly experienced this, that when things start to go wrong, my first thing is, what did I do wrong? And maybe I've got this all mixed up. But those times that I'm able to access the spirit and just stand still and let peace reign in my heart, then I do see the Lord's hand working his will. And I do receive that reassurance that I'm going in the direction he wants me to go. I I love that. I love that. And I can't tell you how many times I have to remind myself that every obstacle we experience in life is a gift. It's a step up. It's an opportunity to come closer to Christ. And there's, there's so much power when we look at things that way. So in this, in this uh, second principle, signs of his covenant, I think it's also helpful to remember that just on your point, the Lord prophesied to, to Abraham that his children would be, would be stuck in Egypt. And he made a covenant with him that he would redeem those children from Egypt after they had been there for many, many years. And we didn't really get into this back in Genesis 15, but I think it's important to highlight it here. In Genesis 15, the Lord has, he's dealing with Abram before Abram becomes Abraham. And he tells Abram to take four animals and cut them in half. And, and this is a, this is a material sacrifice for Abraham. These are his, he doesn't have children at the time. These are, these are his most precious possessions. He loves his, his livestock, his, his animals. And he waits. And while he's waiting, the Lord um, is waiting to watch what will happen. And Satan comes and attacks Abram 
with darkness, very similar to how Joseph Smith was attacked. And then Abram continues to plead with the Lord and, the, and a, a burning lamp or a light shows up at the at one end of these animals that are cut in half and lined head to tail. And some people in our, in our modern context were like, oh, that's kind of gruesome. I, I think this is a really powerful symbol because it's not only symbolic of a dividing or a scattering, but also it's very visceral. It's very, it's very connected to how painful this, these, these burdens are that the Lord is trying to heal inside of us. And so the light shows up and delivers Abraham from the darkness, very similar to Joseph Smith. And then Abraham and, and the light walk through the animals and switch places. When you start to connect this exchange, which is, in, in my opinion, is an at-one-ment or an atonement where Christ says, I'm going to, I'm going to take your place, Abraham. I'm going to change your name from Abraham to Abraham. And this is, part, this is the covenant or the cutting, which is a very, that, 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 that's the same word in Hebrew. This idea of this exchange is very similar to the children of Israel walking through the Red Sea. And the symbolism is so powerful that Abraham, you know, it's a holy place and Abraham um, preserves this prophecy for his children and reminds them, hey, you're going to be in Egypt, but the Lord is going to deliver you just like he delivered me from this darkness. So then <clears throat> fast forward to Moses, when Moses shows up and these miracles are, are a reference to those prior prophecies. They're, they're a reference to that prior covenant that was made in, in Genesis 15. And this comes to, into a third layer of symbolism because the best symbols, uh, Joseph McConkie used to say the best symbols um, have no end. You know, the symbolism just keeps going and going and going. Um, when Christ shows up after he, uh, the, the future Israelites hasn't happened yet. And the saints are fighting in the battle of Armageddon and they're defending Jerusalem. And there are Jews that have finally succumbed and they're in the corner of the temple wall next to this gate right here, the, the mercy gate or the, the Messiah gate. And they're, they're waiting for the Babylon warriors to destroy them and kill them. Christ shows up and touches the Mount of Olives. And just like the animals and just like the Red Sea divides, once he touches the ground, the, 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 that Mount of Olives divides asunder and they, they flee their captors and rush to him and they see him and they think he's the long awaited Messiah. And then they see the wounds in his hands and his feet. And they ask him, like it says in Doctrine and Covenants, where did you get these wounds? And he says, these are the wounds I received in the house of my friends. That deliverance, that's that sorrowful, but joyful release is what I think is preserved in the symbolism in Genesis 15 in this story with the children of the Red and the Red Sea, and then also in that future prophecy of the deliverance by the Messiah. And the, the Hebrews have a word for it. It's naham, which means to be joyful and sorrowful at the same time. Because of course, there's so much joy in knowing that you've been delivered by the Savior and his grace and his mercy and his love. And there's also so much sorrow that we caused those wounds, that we we created, the, you know, participated in the darkness that had to lead to him delivering us, him paying for it. So I think that's a beautiful foundation for all of these miracles. He's trying to help us find our path back to him. He's trying to help us overcome these obstacles so we can know him and become like him. What do you think about that? I think that is a profound and exquisite explanation. I love that. Um, I've always been very intrigued by that account in Genesis 15 and the understanding that we cut a covenant um, and in fact, it's even related to the cutting of the circumcision, which is a token of the covenant, but I never had taken it into the Red Sea, Sam, or also the Mount of Olives account for the second coming. I love that. Thank you for pointing that out. That is just beautiful. And especially that sort of emphasis on sorrowful, joyful at the same time. I love that. That is so profound. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you. You're right. I love the, the symbolism just with circumcision and everything, it just keeps going, right? So <clears throat> next we get to principle three, which is a, a really beautifully deep realm of principle that uh, I don't think we fully understand everything about this. But the, if, you, if you look for the, the clues and the themes, it's everywhere in the scriptures, it, beginning with this idea that Christ is the word in the New Testament. There's something about, we, we understand a little bit with our modern day physics and science, there's something about speech that is divine. It's powerful. The harmonics do something, you know, 
there's a lot of conspiracy theorists who think that you know we can't build the pyramids anymore. We don't have the modern uh, technology to do it or the ancient technology to do it. There's a lot of people who think that, that those pyramids were made by sound. So there's something about frequency or harmony or uh, vibrations that we ha- we've, we've lost, but it's, it's pres- the, uh, the idea is preserved in the scriptures. And it's, it's interesting because there's two different accounts. There's the, there's the version that we get in the Old Testament that's been muddled by translation. And then there's the version that Nephi gives us. And Nephi says, because he's, you know, he's relating the story at a closer time to when it actually occurred. He says in 1 Nephi 17, 26, quote, by his word, end quote, the waters of the Red Sea were divided, speaking of Moses. And then he says in verse 27, quote, by his word, end quote, Pharaoh and his armies were drowned in the Red Sea. So there's something about speech and it being connected to being powered by Christ and this idea of speaking with authority, speaking with faith, speaking with, with our lips and our hearts that, that creates miracles. This is, like I said, it's all throughout the scripture. So um, in 1 Nephi 17, it continues to say, quote, according to his word, end quote, the Lord did lead them. Quote, according to his word, he did do all things for them. There was not anything done save it were by his word. So Moses is speaking to create, to lead, to save, there's something about that. And, it's, and we capture it in modern day fiction. When you look at um, Harry Potter and casting spells, this idea that we can say things and make things happen is not something that is the fantasy of Hollywood. It's actually something that's doctrinal. We just don't fully understand it. But we, we also believe in it when we, when we say a prayer or a blessing, when we consecrate buildings or when we consecrate, you know, uh, different activities or we ordain people. There's something about speech that um, is beautiful and points us to Christ. So by his word, the waters of the Red Sea were divided. And by his word, Pharaoh and his armies were drowned in the Red Sea. And Moses is showing the people to look to Christ. He's showing them the Lord will deliver. And then again, later in in Nephi, he says, quote, for he, Moses, truly spoke or spake under the waters of the Red Sea, and they divided hither and thither, and our fathers came through out of captivity on dry ground, and the armies of Pharaoh did follow them or were drowned in the waters of the Red Sea, end quote. It's by his word. It's it's by speaking. There's a lot of different Hollywood interpretations of how this happens with Charlton Heston and some of the newer versions where Moses takes his staff and hits the water, or even the scriptures say he raises his hands, but Nephi clarifies it for us. He spoke. There was, and this is consistent with so many other miracles that we see. Christ spoke to create light in Genesis 1, verse 3, and to create the earth, even all creation. It's one of the reasons why I think he's referred to in the Word as the Word in the New Testament. Enoch spoke to turn back rivers, move mountains, and make lions roar. Again, vibration or energy, right? And quote, open they uh, excuse me, open their mouth and it open. I'm sorry, that's type of open thy mouth and it shall be filled, and I will give the utterance, end quote, is what the Lord tells Enoch. And Melchizedek speaks to silence lions and move mountains as well. Brother Jared spoke to move Mount Zarin. And even Jacob later says, we can command in Christ's name and even the wind and the trees obey us in Jacob 4 or 6. And we know that even the ability to speak is a gift of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Ghost gives us utterance according to 2 Nephi 28.4 and DNC 14.8. The book of Hebrews also talks about how uh, the it says in Hebrews 4.12, for the word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than a two-edged sword, piercing even the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and tents of the heart. So this piercing, this dividing is what Moses does with the Red Sea. And it's what can happen to us. We can cut away the, the darkness, we can cut away the negative, and we can return to the light. Here's, now this is a fun little physics thing as well. And I'm curious what you think about this, Linda. So we know in DNC 84, 45, that the word of the Lord is truth. So the word equals truth. And it's, and the Lord tells us whatsoever is truth is light. And whatsoever is is light is spirit, even the spirit of Jesus Christ. And then later in DNC 131, verse seven, the Lord tells us spirit is matter but it is more fine or pure than mortal element or matter. So if truth equals light and light equals spirit and spirit equals matter, then what does truth equal? 
truth is matter. <laughs> There's something we don't fully understand, but it, that's why it hits us. That's why it fills us. And we can feel it when, it when it impacts us. What do you think about that? I think this is really powerful. Uh, we were talking a little bit earlier before began, we began recording that I've been doing quite a bit of reading lately about um, sort of the untapped uh, power within us and that I feel that Heavenly Father has given us these divine seeds of his own godhood and he'd like us to learn how to use them. And I think that's one of the greatest blessings and privileges specifically of uh, being members of the church and receiving the ordinances of the church, receiving the Holy Ghost, our temple ordinances, and um, and also specifically the gift of the priesthood. But I think that, as Brigham Young said, we live far below our privileges because we really don't comprehend or understand this sort of innate power that the Lord has given us. I also love, Sam, you know, you kind of put me on the, on the uh, uh, testing me here in terms of this then truth equals, because there are so many things that came to my mind about that. Like I see truth equaling Jesus Christ and truth equaling going back to your initial, the word and the sense that um, I was thinking about the, uh, in your, when you were talking, I was also thinking about the, uh, that of the 10 commandments, the commandment says that we shall not take the, the name of the Lord in vain. And I was thinking about how Moses is illustrating when he's using his word to bring about these things. In other words, he's using the power of Christ, but he's speaking only according to the way that Christ would have him speak, much like the account of Nephi that we have in, I can't remember, sorry, if it's Helaman or third Nephi, where Nephi is given the power to of the sealing power, because the Lord said, I know he won't ask anything that isn't in accordance with the will of the Lord. So Nephi was granted these keys. And I think that in terms of what you're, you're saying here, this idea of speaking, it has so many layers for us to ponder and consider here, because number one, looking at Nephi or Moses, that we wouldn't speak anything that isn't in accordance with the Lord's will increases our power when we are speaking. And, um, and I, again, the sense that there's so much more available to us as we ponder and pray. I love the scripture you brought in about that the spirit itself will teach us what we're supposed to say. And I know that there's the beautiful scripture about even it will teach us what we should pray, that there are times we don't know how we should pray and that the spirit, if we ask, will teach us what words we should pray. So I love this um, this uh, path you're taking us on, Sam, that's really helping us to consider the power of the word, the word being Jesus Christ. And then we have this opportunity to follow in his path by using his word and truth and light. And how do we speak the word? And we know that um, comparing this to the Israelites murmuring or Laman and Lemuel's murmuring, we also know that the word in a negative context can have great power as well. And so the sense of focusing on uh, this light and truth when we speak and speaking by the word of the Lord and the will of the Lord, I think that there's a tremendous potential there for us in our learning who we are. Into that. I love that. And it's funny, I actually have this that, that scripture about uh, Nephi later on and the miracles he performs when he's given that sealing power. There, there's something that's so powerful. Actually, it's right here. <laughs> um, I forgot I put it in right here. So it says in Helaman 3, 29 through 30, Whosoever will may will may lay a hold upon the word of God, which is quick and powerful, which shall divide us under all the cunning and the snares and the wiles of the devil, and lead the man of Christ in a straight and narrow course across the everlasting gulf of misery, which is prepared to engulf the wicked, and land their souls, yea, their immortal souls, at the right hand of God in the kingdom of heaven to sit down with Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, and with all our holy fathers and mothers, and to go no more out. <laughs> There's there's so much power in this idea that we can we can cut through the darkness and find out who we really are, and I, I love I, I love that you you talk about how it helps us come closer to Him. He He is the source of that light and that truth, and that's how it's how He nourishes our souls is by His Word. And so Nephi and also Exodus talk about how Christ nourishes us by His Word. It says in First uh, Nephi 17, 28 through 29, quote, by his word, according to the power of God, which was in him, Moses was able to feed Israel with manna 
And Moses smote the rock to bring forth water to quench their thirst. So he starts to not only feed their souls, but also feed their, their bodies so they can receive nourishment. And there's, a, there's another miracle in these chapters where they come to the waters of Marath, uh, but they couldn't drink them because they were bitter. And the people murmured against Moses saying, what shall we drink? Back to your earlier point about how they were like, hey, this is hard. Why is this so difficult? Why isn't this easier? And Moses cries to the Lord and the Lord shows him a tree that he can cast into the waters and the waters were made sweet. And there he proved them which is back to this idea of with the word, with the power, with knowing Christ in these miracles, we can prove who we really are and, and find ourselves in him. In Exodus 16 and 14, or excuse me, 16, four, and also in verse 12, it talks about how that's what the Lord is trying to do. He's trying to prove us. He's trying to help us know who we are. In verse four, it says, then said the Lord unto Moses, behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you and the people shall go out and gather a certain a certain rate every day that I may prove them whether they will work in my law or no, whether they'll be consistent with my word, with my truth, my light or not. And in verse 12, I have heard the murmurings of the children of Israel speaking to them saying at even ye shall eat flesh and in the morning ye shall be filled with bread and ye shall know that ye shall know that I am the Lord your God. So here's quail, here's manna and, and I'll take care of you. Um, can we go back? Can we go back to your yeah, last? Sure. Or just a Absolutely. Minute because I just think when you're talking about the importance of understanding and relying on his word, but even at your initial introduction that um, the people are learning how to go from being simple witnesses or observers to participants, and then full becoming um, who it is that the Lord um, has intended them to do. I think about this exercise of the daily collection of the manna and the yeah. quail, you know, that daily yeah. exercise of how important that was for them. He says, I'm proving them, but in, in their own way, they're also proving him. In other words, they're learning that they really do need to rely on him. And mm -hmm. um, it's interesting to me that this specifically about the manna and your emphasis, Sam, on this idea of um, leaning on the word and if the word is Christ, that um, when Jesus is performing his ministry and he does the miracle of the loaves and the fishes, uh, and then he says, I am the bread of life, the mm -hmm. people that he's speaking to at that time specifically go back to this period of time of the Israelites. And they say, well, you can't be greater than our fathers. Our fathers had manna every day. And mm -hmm. um, Jesus tells them, I'm that manna from heaven. So what I like there is sort of wrapping up together this sense that people were learning, they were proving themselves to the Lord, but they were also proving the Lord. And then later, they come to look at the manna just as the food that fed them. And they don't make the connection or they've lost the connection of relying on the Lord himself, on relying on Jesus Christ, on relying on he who is the bread of life. And so um, I think about the opportunities that we have to every day, if you will, uh, rely on the manna or the word to refresh the word in our own souls and spirit so that we can become closer to the Lord, which was the whole point of, of this exercise of daily going to gather. What do you think? I love that. I love that. I hadn't even thought of that. It's true. It's We, we need to receive it. And, you know, uh, it makes me think of how critical it is that we read his word every day. I made a covenant with the Lord as a high schooler. And I, I'm a big proponent of, of this with seminary kids and, um, and institute kids that if you want something that's good, go make a covenant with the Lord or a sacrifice, something you're going to do consistently and tell him, I'm going to do this if you'll give me this. For me, I was a freshman in high school. I didn't feel like I had any friends and I wanted to have friends. I wanted to feel included. Um, we were very, very poor growing up. We didn't have the resources that my neighbors did. I grew up in a very wealthy area in Provo, but we were the poorest kids in the block. <laughs> I wore DI clothes, you know, and my parents loved me, but we just didn't have a lot of resources. And I did, I felt like that kind of ostracized me a little bit from others. And I made a covenant with the Lord that I would read the Book of Mormon every day for at least 15 minutes in the morning. And that if he would do that, he'd help me become popular and <laughs> have friends. <laughs> did you, bec did I know you become popular? 
you know, it's funny. I actually, they do the whole, it's so silly because all high school stuff, but I was voted the best personality um, at my senior year in high school. And I, and I was like, this is totally God hooking me up because I read my scriptures every day. It filled, it filled my temple with light. It helped me understand him. It helped me know who I was with him. And when people, when you feel that confidence, like it talks about in DNC 121, you know, let virtue and garnish your thoughts and like love fill your heart to, towards the household of faith and all men. When that fills you, you radiate light. Your countenance changes, and and people want to be around you. And I, that's I feel like that was a fulfillment of what the Lord was trying um, to do with the Israelites here. But in my life, gathering daily. Now that you highlight that, I love that. Well, I um, love I love that experience, Sam. And I do have to just share the same thing for me that occurred is that. Um, there was a period of time, I was 30 years old, and I was called to be Relief Society president. I had young children at home. And and in fact, my son was extremely active, had ADHD. And my husband was out of town for nine to uh, 13 days at a time. And, and I just thought, how am I going to do this? And specifically, it was a ward with lots and lots of single sisters. And as I went to the Lord praying, how will I, how will I fulfill this? How will I do this? It was interesting, because I received a powerful answer back. Uh, from the Lord that he said, I want you to set an alarm an hour before the kids typically get up. And my son was, as I mentioned, very mm-hmm. active and, and was up very early. And he said, <laughs> and he said, I want you to spend that hour in the morning with me um, in journaling and reading scriptures. And so I did, I started that every, every day. And um, I cannot express the degree of blessings that I received as a result and in much more than my calling, certainly I received it as a mother, but um, in terms of that sense of that daily bread, of that daily refreshing and, and of that light, that has been a habit now that I've maintained into my much later years. And, um, and, it, and it, is, it is a tremendous gift and blessing to me. Yeah, I love that. And, I, you know, it's, it's true for me, too. I, 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 won't, miss, I won't miss it. it. It's too critical to who I am and my peace. And, and, and the days that I do it later in the day, I feel it. I notice it. Um, so what, what a fun corollary. I, the, the, the ability to make a modern day covenant with the Lord to seek what we want. So <clears throat> I want to highlight a little bit of scriptural inconsistency um, where there's this idea that he's supposed to be using the word, but then he strikes um, the rock later on. Um, Moses does. And, you know, it's when the people come to him and they're pressuring him and they're criticizing him and they're, and we're talking uh, ostensibly, I mean, I'm I'm presuming it's millions of people who are complaining about not having the resources they need to live. They're little children hungering and thirsting. I mean, I know how hungry I can get and then how angry I can get. I can only imagine (laughs) being in the desert, not having food and water. And so the people come thirsting and they murmur against Moses and he's like, why did you bring us out here in Exodus 17, one through three? It would have been better for us to, to die. It would have been better for us to be killed in Egypt and, our, and have our children and our cattle um, die rather than have them die of thirst out here in the, in, the, in the wilderness. Moses goes to the Lord. He says, what shall I do unto this people? They're, ready to, they're almost ready to stone me. They're going to kill me. And the Lord says to him, go before the people take with the, the elders of Israel and thy rod. The rod is symbolic and there's power in it. And behold, I will stand before thee there upon the, the rock. I think that's beautiful. I will stand before thee. He's Christ is in every experience. He's right there. I will stand before thee there upon the rock in Horeb. And thou shalt smite the rock and there shall come out water, water out of it. And that the people may drink. And Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. This is that progression because... Moses is told to smite and then it works. It's a miracle. It's like the Lord is modeling it for him, showing him how to do this. And it brings water. And later on, we'll get to it a little bit, but later on, Moses fearful of the people when a similar thing happens in in numbers, instead of speaking to the rock, like the Lord commands him to, he he smites the rock and he gets in trouble. I, I, before we get to that though, I want to highlight I mean, look at this picture. I picked old pictures, so I wasn't violating copyright because <laughs> I'm an IP attorney. <laughs> so this is, these paintings are from like the 1800s. But that painting shows just the release these people feel and how much they rejoice in having the water. And back to this word idea, how often do we give thanks and, and, and bless the Lord and give gratitude for him and, and say blessings in his name? How often do we do that as if we were 
dependent on him. It's so easy to... Go ahead. What are you going to say? Well, there's so many symbols of Christ here. You know, the rock, the rock, the water, the rod, hold the rod, the iron rod. So many symbols symbols of Christ here and the sense of our dependence upon him. And I, I love you're bringing up this sense of Thanksgiving and they're going to sing this song of salvation unto the Lord. And I can't think about, I can't think of that without thinking how delighted the Lord must have been when they finally sort of acknowledged and praised him and, and sang those songs of praise to him. And I don't know if you've ever done this before, but I found it really powerful to just have some prayers that are nothing but gratitude, not, not asking the Lord for anything, but just gratitude and, and um, the sense of the fullness that enters my heart. And when I do that, I even become aware of things that I hadn't really thought of before as recognizing having come from the Lord. And I think that, you know, that's so powerful and important here that the people need to stop looking at Moses as giving them water. And they need to start recognizing that this is the Lord giving them the water and the bread and, um, and nourishing them with the quail and keeping them safe and their clothes not wearing out that, that they need to look to him and recognize that it's him. And I love all the symbols here of the sacrament, the same sort of sense for us of the water and the bread and how important that is for us to um, partake of that atonement of the savior and make ourselves one with him. Uh, I love that. That's so beautiful. And he, he being living water, drinking and never thirsting again, really, really taking him into us. That's beautiful. Well, and he, he just continues to do that. The bread of life, like, you know, daily bread, all that kind of stuff. It's interesting. <clears throat> um, manna, when, when the manna finally comes, manna in Hebrew actually means, what is it? They're like, oh yeah, what is this stuff? Um, they, they didn't, it says right there in Exodus 16, 14, they're like, we don't know what it is. What, we wish not what, this, what it was. And Moses says unto them, this is the bread which the Lord hath given you to eat. And it's interesting how it works. The dew would come on the ground. And then as the dew would evaporate, it would form small round things as small as the hoarfrost on the ground. So it's, it's not like they had like these hamburgers that would show up on the ground or things larger than even like maybe your thumbnail. Like these like little, uh, like it's described as coriander seeds in verse uh, chapter 16, verse 31 it says in the house of Israel called the name manna and it was like coriander seed white and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. So there's like little pieces of rice or seed. And you can see in this, this painting, they had to like scoop it up like individual snowflakes or, or pieces of, of grain. And <clears throat> later on, here's this, this reference we were talking about in, in numbers 20, instead of progressing to speaking in the Lord's name, um, the Lord, you know, which the Lord commands him to do in Numbers 20, uh, Moses ends up lifting up his hand with his rod the second time, bringing more water from the second rock. And he, and he beat the rock twice and the water came out. So the Lord still performed the miracle, but the Lord tells Moses because of unbelief of the people and of Moses, because he didn't speak like he was commanded. Um, Moses had failed to sanctify the people. This is an example of how they weren't ready to let go of the fear. They weren't ready to let go of the victimhood. And so they could not enter into the land, which the Lord had given them. This has always been really painful to me. I think thinking of Moses, because, you know, you think of the scripture to whom much is given much is required because Mm -hmm. Moses gets, this is a very strict uh, repercussion on Moses that he doesn't get to go into the promised land. And, you know, he said, I will give you water. And, you know, he did know, but that, but it's also a good lesson for us because there are times that we become so overwhelmed or so discouraged. (laughs) I mean, certainly as parents, right. Um, Is that there's these times and Moses felt like a parent to these people. It's not coincidence that they're always called the children of Israel. And, um, and he just became so discouraged that he, he lost that remembrance for a moment, but the Lord holds him quite accountable for it. Yeah, he, he, he sticks, he's trying to teach him. He's trying to help him understand. And, and we, we all have those experiences where we recognize we failed. We missed the mark. We were afraid. I mean, there's a reason the, whenever the angels show up, they always say, you know, boom, in a, a bloom of light. They always say, fear not. Because the, the fear is so destructive. It's Satan's tool to get us to miss the mark. And even with that, we know that Moses, according to Alma, the tradition was that Moses was later translated. Right. 
And so there, there's this, there's this progression. It's okay. You missed the mark. Let me heal you. Let me help you. I love that. Well, and he also got to come to the Kirtland temple and on the Mount of Transfiguration. So it's not like, it's not like he's in a bad boy prison or something. Nope. You know? <laughs> no, no, in no, fact, very much. In fact, in fact, we might say actually that it was a relief for Moses to not have to keep following those people into the promised land. <laughs> right, right. Even that's in there. Amen to that. Well, th- I also want to highlight that this, back to the miracle of um, dividing the Red Sea, the miracle of, of these miracles that happen in these pressure cooker moments where Moses is like, I, I, don't, I don't know how to deal with this. And he's listening to the Lord. The Lord tells us in Doctrine and Covenants, section eight, verse two, these miracles happen because of the spirit of revelation, the ability to hear the word of the Lord. And um, and he sets up that principle really beautifully in DNC 82. He says, behold, I will tell you in your mind and in your heart by the Holy Ghost, which shall come upon you and which shall dwell in your heart. Now behold, this is the spirit of revelation. Behold, this is the spirit by which Moses brought the children of Israel through the Red Sea on dry ground. And, and in my opinion, perform those other miracles. The Lord wants us to learn how to hear things with our mind and our heart and then speak with our lips and our heart. And in DNC, uh, excuse me, in Helaman 10, 4 through 5, this is the verse, I'm sorry, actually I was wrong. This is the verse I, I put in here. Uh, Helaman 10, 4 through 5, this is where Helaman, in a Book of Mormon corollary, is given the same power to speak and make things happen. He says in verse four through five, the Lord speaking to Nephi after he had called out who had actually killed the, the chief judge on the judgment seat and had tried to convince the, the people that, to believe in God and get ready for Christ to come. The Lord, seeing the weariness of Nephi and how tireless he was in serving, he says, blessed art thou Nephi, I have beheld how that was, how that thou hast with unweariness declared the word, and thou hast not feared. Behold, I will bless thee forever, and I will make thee mighty in word, just like Moses. And indeed, in faith and in work, say even that all things shall be done unto thee according to thy word. For thou shalt not ask that which is contrary to my will. And he ends up raising his brother from the dead. It's said that he has the ability to speak and people cannot not believe him when he goes to them. They get so upset with him. They're like, stop telling us the truth. We can't not believe you. <laughs> right. And then he ends up having these amazing experiences where he, he declares a famine. He says, Lord, let there be a famine to stop the fighting. This is the, the sealing power that I think the Lord is inviting all of us to as participants, as, as becoming more like him. What do you think about this? Oh, well, I agree. It's just, it's just, Amazing. I was just thinking when you were talking and reading this, I was just thinking about uh, Brigham Young said that if uh, if we could see who we are eternally, who the Lord has created us to be, and by the way, who we were before we came here, he said that we are meant to speak worlds into being or to create worlds by our by our speaking, by our voice. And I think that the Lord is giving us the opportunity to practice here in mortality and that he's giving us also the keys by which we can practice. As we read the scriptures here, um, it helps us to understand the progressive steps that we need to take so that we can someday fulfill that role that he has in mind for us. Uh, Something that I was also thinking about, you've just got my mind swirling, Sam, is this sense uh, you introduced at the beginning is that the Lord was performing the miracle so that we might know him. And um, in his great intercessory prayer in John 17, the Lord, uh, the Savior said, for this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God and Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. That is the meaning of eternal life, to to know them. And I can't help but feel um, that as we come to know them, we also come to know ourselves. And, uh, you know, thinking about Nephi here and the discouragement he had experienced previously, I just keep thinking in all of these stories how these people start out on the path they think the Lord wants them to follow, as in Nephi's case, as in the Israelites' case. But then those difficulties arise. And then if we look at Moses' example and Nephi's example and um, this Nephi's example of how they um, exercise faith in the Lord through those difficult times, we see them increase in power. And I think that's a really important principle for us to, to understand as we're trying to learn how to become like God ourselves. 
Absolutely. That, I, will, I love ahead. that. No, no, I lo- go ahead. I didn't mean to cut you off. I, I love that. Well, so on that point, though, I, I just feel like this is such a natural uh, segue. So if you look in modern day corollaries, now this is just a small example. And if you haven't, if anybody's watching and they're like, oh, this is silly, I dare you to try it. <laughs> because there's a Japanese scientist who studied water, Masamura Yamoto. He has some really cool stuff about speech and how it affects water. His, his experiments are consistently criticized by people who claim that they don't work. But then there's just as many people who do the experiment who say it does work. And I, it's fascinating what he does. This is one of the experiments. You take three jars of rice and I dare you to do it, but you have to believe it because we, if you don't say something with your heart, if you're not speaking with your lips and your heart, you're going to miss it. That's why when, when Christ shows up to Joseph Smith in the first vision, what's the first thing he says about the people? He says, they draw near to me with their lips their hearts are far from me. There's something about speaking with our hearts and with our lips that, that changes the very matter around us and helps us become more filled with light and draws us closer to Christ, helps us become more like him. So this experiment is where you take three jars of rice, equal amount, equal water. I've done this several times with my kids. You write love or I love you on one of the jars of rice. You don't do anything on the middle one. And then on the, on the third one, you write, I hate you or, or hate, like in this picture. And this is courtesy of Tracy Trader. She wrote a blog about it back in 2015. This has been around for a while. When, when I have done this, we do it for a week. And the rice that we, and, and my kids and I will go into the rice every day and we will say, I love you to the first jar. We won't say anything to the middle jar. And then the third jar will say, I hate you. <laughs> okay. The, the first jar after a week, this is, again, several times, starts to smell sweet, like it's fermenting and starts to have like this, this, uh, it's, it's a nice flavor. It's like it's, it's flourishing. It's progressing. The middle jar actually starts to get a little gross. Like in this one, you can see it's yellow. Um, it's all, and Masamori Yamoto talks about how neglect it, or lack of word is more destructive than hate or critical words, because critical words actually it's, you can still actually grow off of critical words. There are plenty of examples in the world of people who deal with criticism and rise above it, right? But the, but the, the jar that has I hate you or hate on it does start to become dark and gross and stink and mildewy and moldy. This is a modern day example. If you want to see how much your speech can affect things, if you want to see why we bless food in the name of Christ, why we try and uh, bless our homes, why we give blessings by speech, this to me is a little example of that that's that's so insightful there's so much we don't understand what do you think this is incredible i've read the book and i actually was talking about it with somebody the other day but i'd not ever seen or known someone who actually did this experiment it's incredible wow he's the word and he's trying to teach us how to resonate or have that frequency as well like him to have that light well, and so, can we just for a second tie in, uh-huh. because I know your love of Zion, Sam, I just think of whenever I think of you, I think of that. Um, tell us about how you feel that frequency of that you just shared of the love or nothing or hate. How does that affect us as a group of people and the sense of Zion? You know, it's hard not to think about the conflict in Ukraine as a contrast to this right now, the war. Um disharmony or discordance, dissonance, uh, meaning things are off, they're jarring against each other, is what war is. And it's so devastating. I mean, you just, you read the story just yesterday, how uh, Russian bombers bombed out uh, uh, a theater that had in very large letters in chalk, children written next to it. And the destruction of that is just, it's, you can't ignore it. And the contrast of that destruction and that disharmony, that dissonance is harmony. It's, it's, it's song. It's, it's this beautiful synergy and light and connectedness and compassion. And it, I, I love that you highlighted it earlier. And, and I, you know, I served my mission in Moldova right next to Ukraine. So I, I, I'm thinking about this all the time right now, but, and my brother-in-law served in Ukraine, <clears throat> but I love that you highlighted earlier that when the children of Israel were released, they sang. And when Christ, to your question, when, when Christ comes again in DNC 84, we will sing a new song. 
it's not just symbolic. It's literal too. There's, there's power in the harmony of the song. There's a reason we sing at church. And it talks in Genesis 15, verse 1, then sing, sing Moses, Moses sang, and the children of Israel, this song of the Lord and spake, saying, I will sing unto the Lord, for he hath triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider hath he thrown into the sea. The Lord is my strength and song, and he is become my salvation. He is my God, and I will prepare him habitation, my father's God, and I will exalt him. There's so much in this verse. We're supposed to accelerate the coming of the Lord. We're supposed to prepare the way for him. I believe one of the reasons we don't know when the second coming will happen is because it's up to us. We're supposed to prepare him a habitation. We're supposed to build communities that are filled with love and truth and light and follow the laws of, of divine love. And you look at um, this song of redeeming love that's referred to in Alma five. It's the same idea. This is woven all throughout the scriptures and this idea of song. And you and I talked about this before we start recording and you highlighted, hey, the Psalms were hymns. I love that. Jesus sang with his apostles at the Last Supper before he was crucified. The early saints actually sang the book of Hebrews as a way to purify the singers to enter the Holy of Holies, like in a temple ceremony. And like we talked about just a second ago in DNC 84, 99 through 102, there's this beautiful new song that we will sing. And I believe if Christ's word can create his song ignites. It literally fills things with light and fire, or as the Hebrews call it, Shekinah, celestial or everlasting burning, right? And so um, I don't want to skip ahead to the next one, sorry. <laughs> if you want to talk about this, because I know you have thoughts on this, go ahead. Well, I, I, I love your title and I love the thought of it. Um, the book that I just finished and came out uh, in February is... Um, is called The Redemption of the Bride, 